I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. We'll kind of give you a head start on uh, getting to the first scripture that we'll go to. But before we do that, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about what we want to discuss and and, uh, which direction we want to go tonight. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God. The Bible also says in James chapter 1, verses 5, 6, 7, around there, maybe in verse 8 as well, it says that unwavering faith is necessary to receive from God. It says, let the man that believes God or extends his faith toward God have unwavering faith. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man, the man that wavers in his faith, think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Well, if faith is necessary to please God, and it's impossible to please God without receiving what God has done for you. And if unwavering faith is necessary to receive from God, then we should see faith as a critical element in receiving anything and everything, including healing. Well, if we test that out, if we look at the four Gospels and see the ministry of Jesus, the healing ministry of Jesus, we find that there were 19 individual cases of healing in the ministry of Jesus. Now, some of the Gospels record some of the same ones, so it seems to us like there might be more. And that doesn't take into account the time when the multitudes were healed and different groups and and so forth, 10 lepers and and so forth. But if you take the individual cases of healing, or we might call them individual healing events that are recorded in the four Gospels, there are 19 cases. And of those 19, almost 75%, almost three-quarters of them, identify the faith of the individual. Now, most people think in the church world, most people seem to have the idea that Jesus healed to prove that he was the son of God. Well, if Jesus healed to prove that he was the son of God, why was the individual's faith identified in almost three-quarters of the cases of healing that took place in his ministry that we have record of? I'm sure there were a lot more that, uh, that took place. John said if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world couldn't contain the books. So I'm sure that these 19 individual cases of healing are given to us as a representative sample of the healing ministry of Jesus. Well, if that's the the representation that the Holy Ghost saved for us, he must be trying to communicate something to us when three-quarters of those individual cases of healing identify either specifically or implied the faith of the individual. Could we conclude that that faith is necessary from Jesus' example, that faith is just as necessary as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and James chapter 1, verse 8 tells us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without unwavering faith, it's impossible to receive from God. Now, the number one thing, the number one reason that most of the church world is not healed, the number one objection, without question, nothing else is even close. The number one objection that you have to overcome in the mind of most Christians, is, is it God's will to heal everybody? Is it God's will to heal everybody? Now, nobody will argue that God can and does heal. Everybody has found enough evidence, either in their own life or in testimonies that they've heard from other people of healing, the healing power of God operating to raise somebody up. So nobody that I know of will argue the fact that God can heal And very few will argue the fact that God does heal on occasion. The question for everyone facing sickness and disease 
with a desire to receive healing for their own bodies is, will God heal me? Well, if God will heal you, then that must mean that God wants the same thing for everybody. Now, here's where the church breaks down, in, uh, in my opinion, in my judgment. Because whereas the word of God was given to us as a safe guide, an unwavering, unchanging, eternal truth, much of the church world has, has uh, substituted experience, either personal experience or things that they've heard, testimonies that they've heard, for the truth of the word of God. And as a result, the church questions, is healing for everyone? Well, I've got a question that I want to pose in, in opposition to that. Why wouldn't healing be for everyone? It seems that so much of the church world just accepts as a general premise, well, you never know. You never know if it's God's will to heal everybody or you never know if it's God's will to heal me. He may want to heal somebody else but not me. Why wouldn't healing belong to everybody? The Bible says without question that God never changes. So whatever his will was in the Old Testament has got to be his will in the New Testament. Or else the Bible's a lie. If the Bible's a lie, then you're not saved and you might as well forget it. There's no hope for mankind. Furthermore, the Bible says without question that God is no respecter of persons. Which means God doesn't want good for one person and bad for another person. So why, I'll pose my question again, why wouldn't healing not be for everybody? And where did the notion come about that healing might not be inclusive for all? Look back with me at Exodus chapter 15. God has just delivered the children of Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians. He's just parted the Red Sea. Israel's come across on dry ground. Pharaoh and his chariots follow in after them and are drowned. The water comes back together and drown them. The greatest army, military force, the superpower of the world has been wiped out. Military arm of the superpower of the world has been wiped out in one afternoon, one stroke by a miracle of God. Now the Bible says in Exodus chapter 15 that the very next thing that takes place, really the first half of the chapter, was where Israel begins singing their songs. It talks about Miriam, who is Moses' sister, begins singing a song of deliverance. Now, immediately following that song of deliverance, notice in verse 22, I mean the very next verse, it tells us about God revealing himself to his people. Now, you well understand that God did not, that Israel did not know who God was when he delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. When he sent Moses in to talk to Pharaoh, Moses didn't know who he was. He asked the question when he was talking to God in the burning bush. God said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses said, who am I going to tell him sent me? Well, why doesn't Moses know? Because there is no worship of God. God made a covenant with Abraham some 400 years earlier. Well, longer than that, but they've been in bondage for 400 years. But hundreds of years before that, God made a covenant with Abraham. But nobody's serving God. Nobody is maintaining that covenant. Nobody's calling on God to, to, to perform the covenant that he made with Abraham. God is an unknown deity to Israel. And part of the reason that he, he showed himself so strong and did the miracles concerning the plagues of Egypt 
is because he was trying to show Israel, this is who is, is the, uh, this is the God that has chosen you as his people. So when they see all these miracles and they see these great things, Israel's operating completely from a natural standpoint. That's all they could. They weren't spiritual people. You couldn't be saved in that day. And so they're for God as long as God's for them. As soon as something doesn't seem to go their way, as soon as they get discouraged, then they start murmuring against God, and that happens over and over again. But God has just done something marvelous for them. Now, immediately following that, it says that God reveals himself. And notice how he does it. Verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. One translation says poisonous, not just distasteful, but they were poisonous. You decide for yourself. The, the language really doesn't identify one way or the other, but it's possible, I guess. They couldn't drink the waters of Marah, for, the, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, which means bitterness. And the people murmured against Moses. Here they start, first time. They're murmuring against Moses just as soon as they come out of the, the bondage of Egypt. The people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And Moses cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. Which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, can I ask you a question? What tree has properties to, to clean or to cleanse water? Particularly if these were poisonous waters. Now, I can't say with, with absolute certainty that that's what the the uh, original transcript or the original text in the Hebrew means. So I'm, I'm not going to jump out there. But let's consider that for a minute. What tree has healing properties concerning water, whether it just concerns the taste or poison? Is that a natural occurrence? It can't be. It cannot be. Now, the tree is a type of Jesus. The Bible says that everything or is a type of the cross, rather. Everything the Bible says happened in the Old Testament is given to us as types and shadows for our admonitions. In other words, for us to learn something about it. So here's a type of Jesus being cast into the waters of mankind and making a change and making a difference for them. But God does not just leave it with the type. He reveals himself. So when Moses cast the waters, cast the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Therefore, he made for them a statute and an ordinance. Statute and ordinance is code, Old Testament code for saying eternal law that never changes. There he makes for them a statute and an ordinance. God says, this is the way that it is now, forever, and ever, and ever. It'll never be any different. This is the way that it is. He made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, here's the statute and ordinance. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord, thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put, literally allow, none of these diseases upon thee which have come upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now the language, the King James translation makes it look like God made the Egyptians sick, but he's promising not to make Israel sick. And that's not what the translation, no, that's not what the original text says. It literally says that diseases have come upon the Egyptians, but God will work on the, Israel's behalf to keep that from taking place for them. 
God's not the author of sickness and disease. But notice what the statute and the ordinance is. What is the type and the admonition that we're supposed to learn? Notice the principle that's established here. If you keep God's commandments, in other words, put his word first in your life. If you establish a relationship with God through his word, in other words, he will take sickness away from the midst of you. None of the diseases of the world, Egypt is a type of the world, none of the diseases of the world will come upon you because of what God says about himself. Because I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now the word healeth is in is a present participle uh, form and it literally means continuously. In other words, God is saying, I am the Lord that heal, healeth thee from now on out, from here on out, from this point on forever. But it can also be translated as past tense as well as future tense. Literally, the word in the form of the word that's used here means past, present, and future. Well, what's happened past tense that God would be looking back toward? It would have been very easy for God to use a word that would mean from this point forward and not include the past. But he doesn't. He uses a word that includes the past actions or activities as well. Now, what is that? Well, Psalm 105 verse 37 says, concerning Israel being brought out of the bondage of Egypt, that God brought them forth with silver and gold and there was none people among them. Now, if you turn back a few chapters, I think it's chapter 12. I'm not asking you to do so. I'm just trying to locate where it is. It tells about the Passover. And God instructs Israel, to each house, to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then it instructs them to, to roast the flesh of the lamb and eat the lamb for the, strength, for, their, for the strength of their journey. Specifically, it says, eat the lamb to provide you strength for your journey. Well, when the Bible says that God brought them forth with silver and gold, we know what that is. They borrowed silver and gold, literally demanded wages for the time they'd been in bondage. And came out, they spoiled the Egyptians, the Bible says. We know what that was about. But where it says there was none people among them, how could you have anywhere from three to seven million people and not have any weak or sickly people among them? Slaves are not usually known to be the most healthy group in, in the uh, country. They're certainly not the best fed. They're certainly not the most well cared for. Why would a nation of slaves not have any sick or feeble people among them. Is it possible that eating of the sacrifice, eating of the Passover lamb provided them healing? Folks, it's not a stretch to think so. I personally believe that was the case. The reason for that is because several hundred years later, Second Chronicles chapter 30, it tells us that when Hezekiah was king of Israel, he wanted to reinstitute the Passover. He didn't even do it at the right time of the year. But he reestablished the Passover, and it says in First. Uh, well, let me read it to you. I may get the the reference wrong, so I wrote it down here somewhere. Second Chronicles chapter thirty and verse twenty. When Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover, he prayed and offered it unto the people, and the people were in agreement that that's what they should do. Second Chronicles chapter thirty and verse twenty. It says, "And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people." Healing came through the eating of the Passover hundreds of years after the Passover was first instituted when Hezekiah reinstituted the keeping of the, the ordinance of God. 
Now, the Bible says that Jesus is our Passover. Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. So it's not a stretch at all to think that God is saying, or at least realizing that God could be saying, I'm the one that healed you. I'm the one that brought healing to you through the the Passover just a few days before when I brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord that healeth thee. It could very easily and correctly be translated, I am the Lord that healed thee. But it can't be just talking about past activities because of the tense of the verbs that are used. So in other words, he's saying, I believe he's saying very simply this. We've got Bibles to back it up. I believe that what God is saying to the children of Israel is that if you'll establish a relationship with me through my word, that's how you establish one with God. If you'll keep my commandments and walk in my statutes, then none of the diseases will come upon you which, which come upon the world because I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, there are seven times in the Old Testament that God identifies himself as a different name. One of them is the Lord, our righteousness. One of them is the Lord, our banner or victor. One of them is the Lord, our peace and so forth. Now, nobody in church circles will say that the other six do not apply to present day blessings fulfilled in the work of Jesus. Nobody. Well, then let me ask you this question. Who has the authority to change God's declaration and revelation of I am the Lord that healeth thee to past tense instead of future tense for us? Present future tense for us. I'm going back to the same thing. Why wouldn't healing be for everybody? You certainly can't take the Old Testament stories, this story of God's revelation of him, who he says that he is, This is God naming himself, not somebody else doing it for him. I am the Lord that healed, past tense, with the Passover, present tense for Israel. They understand that it's something that belongs to them then at that present time. And they also understand that the way that it's declared is something that belongs to them in the future. Now, who's left out? Nobody. God's healing revelation, declaration that I am the Lord that healeth thee, Belongs to everybody. Now fast forward to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. It's estimated that this takes place about 20 years into their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. About the halfway point. I'm not sure if that's right or not, but that's that's the only time frame that I know to give you because that's what most people accept to be true. If that's the, if that's the case, there's a lot of the, the first half specifically of their time in the wilderness that's, uh, that's not documented. But nevertheless, some period of time afterwards, it tells us in Numbers chapter 16, it tells us about the sins of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah set themselves up as, as trying to be equal with Moses. Moses was anointed of God to be a spokesman and his prophet to the people. And the sons of Korah wound up saying, we know God just as well as you do. Who are you to try to tell us what God says and so forth? Well, that didn't work out real well for them. Because Moses is instructed by God for everybody that's on Korah's side 
to stand off to themselves and there's like 250 people that are offering incense and gathered with Korah and his household and so forth. There's a lot of people. So they stand off to the side and Moses tells the people what's going to happen. He said, now if these people die a natural death, then there's no way for you to know that God has chosen me to be his prophet and his spokesman over them. But he said, if something miraculous happens, like if the earth opens and swallows them up and then closes together again, then you'll know that that was God choosing sides. Well, that's exactly what happened. The earth opened up, swallowed Korah, the sons of Korah, all of their families and so forth, all the people that were standing on their side, and then closed up again. Now, it didn't take long for the children of Israel not to like that. They began to murmur against Moses within a day or so. And it says, uh, well, where do we want to start reading here? Let's start reading in verse 41, Numbers chapter 16, verse 41. It says, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered together against Moses and against Aaron, that when they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. In other words, God is saying, because they have taken sides against me, rejected me and therefore rejected you and therefore rejected me, I'm going to do away with all of them in a moment. Their sin is worthy of death. God would have been acting justly in every respect because of their rejection of Moses and therefore himself. But notice what Moses does. Moses says to Aaron, take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them for there is wrath gone out from the Lord and the plague is begun. Now the, the means or the manner of, the, of consuming was that there was a sickness or some type of plague that had begun not from God. God's not the one that caused it. But through the sins of the people, there was some kind of sin, or some kind of sickness, some kind of plague that had gone out and already begun to kill the people. Verse 47, And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people. Now notice what stopped it. What stopped the plague was the atonement that was made for the people. The censer or the incense was to make an atonement, was to pay the price for their sins or cover the sins of the people so that the people would not be subject to the plague. So it said, Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. Behold, the plague was begun among the people and he put on the incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed or stopped. Notice what stops sickness, the atonement. Now, does anybody in the church world argue that Jesus is not the atoning one? Does anybody argue in the church world that the work of Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, did not make an atonement for the people? Has that ever been argued? Certainly not. There's argument about what belongs, as a, uh, what belongs to us as part of the atonement. But Jesus is always recognized as the atoning one. 
or our atonement. So this has got to be a type of Jesus. Every atonement in the Old Testament has to be a type of Jesus. So notice what stops sickness in its tracks. Stop the plague. When Moses and Aaron made an atonement for the people. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the plague was stayed. And let me ask you a question. There were people that died before the atonement was made. But once the atonement was made. Who did not benefit from the atonement and receive their healing? In other words, I'm asking the same question. Was healing available for all in this situation? Well, yeah, everybody, as soon as the atonement was made, nobody was left out. God didn't pick winners and losers. The atonement wasn't made. Aaron didn't go running through the congregation with the censer. And God saying, well, you're good, but you did something bad. So healing belongs to you, but not to you. In other words, there was no respecter of persons with God. Once the atonement was made, that which was necessary to stop the plague was available for everybody. Turn with me over to Numbers chapter 21. We'll go about 19 years later. This is right toward the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 21, the people start murmuring against Moses again. Beginning in verse 4, and it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or encircle the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, saying, Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And they're talking about manna. They've been eating manna for 40 years. We're sick of manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Again, this is translated in the causative sense when it should be in the permissive sense. Because there are scriptures that tell us that they were going through a land where there were fiery serpents all around them. And as long as they were operating according to the commandments of God and not murmuring against God and not murmuring against Moses, they had protection from the fiery serpents. But when they start murmuring, then the protection is lifted because of their own sin. They say so. They'll identify that in just a moment. And the fiery serpents come in. See, keeping the word, living by the word provides protection for you. Stepping away from the word lifts that protection to some degree. So it says the Lord sent literally aloud fiery serpents among the people. Fiery means poisonous. And they bit the people and much of Israel had died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said we have sinned. Notice they're not saying it's God's fault. They're not saying God did this to us. They're saying this is our fault. We've sinned. In other words they knew not to murmur but they murmured anyway. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. And against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So the question is the same again. For whom did this atonement... This type 
to pay the price for the sins of the people and to provide healing for them, for whom was this healing not beneficial? To whom did it not work for? Who was left out of God's plan to provide healing for Israel? Nobody. Now, I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 3. How many of you know John chapter 3, verse 16? How many of you can quote it? Well, I won't ask you to. But it's the scripture that we're all familiar with, right? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We understand that the everlasting life Jesus is talking about and the believing in Jesus to obtain that everlasting life is talking about believing that Jesus made his sacrifice on the cross for mankind, right? Everybody understands that. It's not just believing Jesus was here on the earth. But the Bible says that salvation belongs to those who are willing to believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as their Lord and Savior, right? Now, notice the context Let's back up a couple of verses. Jesus is the one that quotes this. So let's back up a couple of verses. And, say, and let's start in. Uh, he's talking to Nicodemus. Let's start in verse 12. We could start earlier, but I don't want to read the whole thing. He's just told Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. How can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb? Verse 12, Jesus said, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is Jesus identifying himself as the, as the fulfillment of the type of the numbers 14 serpent of brass or the numbers 21 serpent of brass. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. Now, folks, so what I want you to see is Jesus identifies the serpent of brass that Moses made to stop the plague, literally to heal the people from the fiery serpent bites, That applied to everybody that looked upon the serpent. Jesus identifies that as a type of himself that would be fulfilled when he went to the cross. So therefore, if Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the type. And the Old Testament example that is given to us. Is everyone that looked upon the serpent was healed. Everyone that beheld the serpent was healed when he looked. Then for whom... Did the work of Jesus not benefit when the type was fulfilled? And some people say, yeah, but that was just talking about salvation. And I completely agree. I completely agree because Isaiah 53 tells us about the salvation work of Jesus. It says, who himself for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Everybody agrees on that. Everybody agrees that Jesus paid the price for sin. But the same verse goes on to say the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being in every area. In other words, it's saying Jesus not only paid the price for sins, he also paid a punishment, chastisement. 
He also suffered a punishment for our well-being in every area. Not just spiritually. Financially. And in every other way. He paid a price for our well-being while we're here on the earth. Not just a spiritual price or spiritual well-being. The verse goes on to say, Isaiah 53, 5 goes on to say, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, to take part of that verse out and say that forgiveness of sins or redemption from sins belongs to everybody, but the rest of that verse is not included, who has the authority to do that? Who has the authority to say, well, what God said about what Jesus would do is not really what he did. Who has that right? I'd sure hate to stand before God at the end and be held accountable for that, wouldn't you? So therefore, if Jesus told us the truth, and I certainly believe he did, and healing was a part, the healing for all was a part of the Old Testament type that was fulfilled when he went to the cross, then everything that Jesus did according to what God told us, everything that God told us that Jesus would do when he went to the cross has to be available for everybody. Now, the problem is this. You could not get somebody saved, even though we know Jesus died for their sins. You could not get somebody saved if they didn't believe that God wanted them to be saved. It would take faith on the part of the individual to receive salvation, even though Jesus paid for it. In other words, you can't believe that God might not want you saved and get saved any more than you could believe that God might not want you healed and receive healing. It's got to be something that you choose to accept according to the word. Now, there's one example that the Bible gives us. One, out of all the people that came to Jesus, out of all the multitudes that came to Jesus, there's only one that we have record of. We don't know if he's representative of others that came with the same idea or if he's the only one. But the fact that there's only one mentioned in the scripture in the four gospels in Jesus' ministry says to me that it was a minority situation. It was not a prevalent idea. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. There was one person that came to Jesus with the idea that is so prevalent today, and that is the idea that maybe God doesn't want to heal me. Maybe healing's not for me. It's impossible to exercise faith for something you don't know God wants you to have. Because there's no way that you could exercise faith thinking that God heals some but doesn't heal everybody. You would have no way to know whether or not you're one of the lucky ones. And so it would be impossible for anyone to exercise faith to receive from God, receive healing from God under those circumstances. So if you're going to receive healing from God, you're going to have to find a definitive answer from the Bible. Man's experience won't won't do but you're going to have to find a definitive answer from the Bible that healing belongs to you. And here was a guy that came to Jesus. So many times people say, well, if only I could ask the Lord. Well, here's a guy that did. He wasn't sure about God's will to heal him. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. 
And behold, there came a leper. Now, leprosy was the, the, uh, the incurable disease of the day. Couldn't have anything worse than leprosy. It was a progressive disease that would eat away your flesh, finally just, just kill you, debilitate you, and then finally kill you, just eat you away little by little by little. It was a flesh-eating disease. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you canst make me clean. The only guy in all the multitudes of people that came to Jesus, the only guy that had a question about whether or not God wanted him to be well was this guy. Now, I would submit to you that in the modern-day church, that's the prevalent attitude. Now, notice what he says. He says clearly that he believes Jesus can heal him. He has the power to do it. Well, that sounds familiar. Most religious people quote quickly, with God, all things are possible. So he says, I know you can. I know you have the power to heal me. What I don't know is, will you? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. If he can't get that answer, he can't get healed. And that's just as true today as it was in his day. You've got to settle the issue once and for all. Is healing for me? Not just is healing for some, not just can God heal. Is healing for me? Because you can never take hold of by faith what you're not convinced is the will of God. F.F. Bosworth used to say it this way. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus went to prayer and asked the Father if it was God's will for him to be well. Because, you know, sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. I, don't want, you, I want you to notice here, folks, Jesus does not do one thing to hesitate Luke's account of this says Jesus immediately reached out and touched him. Saying, I will be thou clean. Now, who is in a position to say that Jesus, who is God sent to the earth, God in the flesh, God who never changes, God who is no respecter of persons, who is it to say that Jesus' answer for this man is not to be accepted as Jesus' answer for every man. But on the other hand, since this is the only example that we have, and I'll I'll go so far as to say this, folks, if there was ever anybody else in Jesus' ministry that came to him and said, Lord, I know you can heal me, but I'm not sure you will, and Jesus didn't answer him in the same way, didn't move to show him his healing power, then God is unjust. He hasn't given us a total picture of himself, which means the Bible is a lie. In other words, what I'm saying is this has to be representative for every man. It has to be. For the Bible to be true, this has to be representative for every man. Lord, if you can't, or Lord, if you will, you can make me healed or make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
Notice there's no hesitation on Jesus' part whatsoever. He doesn't have to pray about it. He doesn't have to ask this man, has he been good? Is he worthy to receive something from God? Has he been a doer or a keeper of the law? Does he keep the Sabbath? Does he pay his tithes? He didn't have to ask any of those things. None of those things are relative or relevant. When Jesus, the one time Jesus is questioned about the will of God to heal an individual, he moves immediately to answer in the affirmative, I will be thou clean, and the minister is healing power to him. So I'm back to my original question. Why wouldn't healing be for everybody? We have no Bible evidence whatsoever that healing is not for everyone. We have no examples from Scripture in any form, in any way whatsoever that healing or any of the blessings of God are for some but not for all. We have no evidence from the Bible of anything except the fulfillment of Jesus on the cross for everything that God said the blessings that his blessings including healing were dependent upon and the bible clearly says that jesus died for the sins of mankind not just lucky ones so even as there are many who will reject jesus and have and fail to exercise faith to receive the redemption that belongs to them there are many christians who will fail to receive by faith the healing that Jesus paid for, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus paid the price for all of man. I totally and completely reject the notion that so much of the church world has that you never know whether God will heal or not. Healing is for everyone because Jesus died for everyone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so good to know that you will for us to receive all the blessings that Jesus purchased for us. It's so good to know that it's your will for us to be healed. Father, with confidence in your word, no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, but choosing to believe your word, we receive by faith right now healing for our bodies from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Jesus, you said... That whatsoever things we desire when we pray, to believe that we receive them and we shall have them. Therefore, we believe we receive healing according to the word of God. We believe we receive healing from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Thank you, Father, that by faith healing is ours now. You said that if we would fulfill those requirements, and we have. You said that we would have the things that we prayed for, the things that we desired. We realize that that means that healing is a spiritual truth, though it may not yet be a physical reality. But it will become a physical reality as we hold fast the profession of our faith. So we choose and declare from this moment forward that we'll never go back on our statement of faith that healing is ours now. Thank you, Father, for your healing power that changes our bodies. In Jesus' name.
in Jesus' name. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. If the Bible's true, there's nothing the devil can do to stop your healing. If the Bible is true. The devil doesn't have enough power to overcome your words and your confession. The exercise of your authority and your will. To receive and take hold of by faith what Jesus has already done for us. Now he'll try to tell you otherwise. He'll try to make you look at your body. But you can't tell you're healed by looking at your body. Because it's a spiritual truth. There's only one way to tell that you're healed. And that is by looking at the word of God. That's where the spiritual truth of God is contained. So as we keep our eyes on the word. Keep our eyes on the truth of God's word. That says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we were healed. There's not enough power in the devil's arsenal. To stop that healing from becoming a physical reality. Amen. Amen. So good to be healed. Amen. Hallelujah. Well God bless you. Thank you for coming. Go you healed people. Have a great week.